Welcome to the Book Collector Podcast. Detective fiction was not always well thought of, as John Carter explains in the latest Book Collector Podcast. His article, Hawkshaw Rides Again, was published in the summer 1963 issue of The Book Collector. When I went to work for the Scribner Rare Book Department in 1927 as assistant European buying agent, I cast about for a congenial but remote field of bibliophily. If a hard hand in the rare book business wants to retain his amateur status on the side, and some do, he must eschew collecting what the customers are buying, or might buy, whatever the Rosenbachs of this world, as proprietors, may do. As an undergraduate, I had collected early editions of the classics, and fine printing generally. But these were, as they still are, much frequented departments. What I needed was something not merely that no one was then collecting, but that no one seemed likely even to consider collecting. And, in the era of the Kern sale, I thought I'd found it. Poe, of course, was collected in the United States as an outstanding American author. The few people who in those distant days paid any attention to the Victorian novelists other than Dickens and Thackeray the trollop boom was still to come, might perhaps find themselves looking for the moonstone. But detective fiction as such? No. I was a great reader of detective stories in those days, not any more, and I addressed myself to this new field with the lively expectation of youth. I found it full of challenge and entertainment. I had a very happy time discovering byways unmarked on the critical maps provided by E. M. Wrong, the Canadian history Donald Maudlin, and Willard Huntington Wright, alias S. S. Van Dyne, and exploring roads unadopted even by Dorothy Sayers and H. Douglas Thompson, the pioneer anthologists and historians of the genre. After four or five years' work, mostly in basements, back rooms and the sixpenny boxes, and the construction of a lot of new shelving at home, I had assembled a respectable share, about 350 titles, of the more significant detective fiction from Poe to 1930, at an average cost, I should think, of half a crown a volume. Meanwhile, however, a breach had been opened in the wall of my Hortus Inclusus. Elkin Matthews Limited, the most imaginative firm of antiquarian booksellers of my time, took up Sherlock Holmes, hitherto the private preserve of a few specialists like H.W. Bell, and before long, such was the trail-blazing influence of Evans and his colleagues. The adventures and the memoirs were up in double figures, and the hounds in full cry after Beaton's annual, 1887, the first Spencer Blackett, issue of The Sign of Four, 1890, and the other Rariora. Not only was Sherlock Homeitis, as the Times uncomfortably christened it, fostered by the increasing number of practitioners of the higher criticism of the Conan Doyle canon, the Sherlock Holmes Society, the Baker Street Irregulars, Ronald Knox, Sir Sidney Roberts et al., it also acted as a spur to bibliophilic enthusiasm for detective fiction as a whole, of which early exponents were Vincent Sterrett in Chicago and E. A. Osborne in London. The latter's article in The Bookman, February 1932, was, I think, the first professional attack ever made on the bibliography of the subject. The vogue was underway. 
And it must have been about this time that we adopted as a motto the resounding assertion of Philip Guadalla, first promulgated by Dorothy Sayers, that the detective story is the normal recreation of noble minds. Guadalla, then at the height of his reputation as the murat of contemporary historians, later told me, when I asked him for the reference, that he could not remember expressing any such sentiment, and certainly did not subscribe to it. But it was too late. It had by that time appeared on the title page of the epoch-making catalogue of detective fiction put out by the Scribner Rare Bookstore of New York in 1934. Six months or so earlier, I had reluctantly recognised that Scribner customers were now as likely as any others. Well, almost as likely. There was still rather a carriage trade lot in those days to be looking for first editions of at least the canonised detective stories. In consequence, I could not hope much longer to avoid what we have since learned to call a conflict of interest. So it was arranged with my sceptical opposite number in New York. This was before the enlistment of David Randall and the Nouvelle Vague at Scribner's, that the firm should take over my collection at some pitifully low figure, as I remember. I was empowered to look out for editions, mostly the more obvious and therefore more expensive books, Poe, Wilkie Collins, Conan Doyle, which I had never been able to afford for myself, and it was agreed that I should catalogue the result for sale. The catalogue was arranged by periods and countries. I insisted on an index of detectives as well as of authors, and an ally in the Scribner Press broke with the rare book department's typographically Puritan tradition by providing a dashing photographic cover. There were 388 items. The highest price was $174 for a brilliant set of the adventures and memoirs, the next $75 for the Leavenworth case and the sign of four, the cheapest was one dollar. And I think there must be a couple of hundred items under ten dollars. Twenty dollars was thought very daring, I remember, for the first and maybe last copy recorded in wrappers of that rarissimum, Victor L. Whitchurch's Thrilling Stories of the Railway, 1912. It was a ludicrously uneconomic catalogue, but it was intended as a demonstration piece. I was therefore as much privately dismayed. I had hoped it would bring to our doors a dozen or two aspiring detective collectors, as my colleague in New York was publicly relieved when an unknown lady walked in off Fifth Avenue a few days after the catalogue was out and bought the collection en bloc. I later learned, they didn't dare tell me at the time, that she was not a book collector at all and didn't know a first edition from a handsaw. She was just a good, loyal friend to her local police precinct, where the favourite reading of New York's finest was, like that of other noble minds, detective fiction. Here were hundreds of titles she and they had never heard of, and this was to be their lending library. Original boards, original wrappers, pristine original cloth, even a few slipcases. It was enough to exorcise one's connoisseurship for good. The wheel, however, has since come nearly full circle. The lady recently died. The New York bookseller called in for evaluation, recognised the collection, almost intact numerically, and offered it to David Randall. From 1935 to 1953, my opposite number at Scribner's, 
now director of the Lilly Library at Indiana University. And there it has come finally to rest. In the same year, 1934, there appeared an enterprising symposium called New Paths in Book Collecting, inspired and published by Michael Sadia. This was designed to suggest an answer to the bibliophile dilemma which he had just summed up in a prescient article in the Colophon as decentralization or deadlock. Collectors were beginning to crawl out of the slough left by the 1929-31 slump. We thought they should be offered some specimen alternatives to the hidebound attitudes and discredited shibboleths of the 1920s. New Paths, which was prefigured in an exhibition under the same title at Bumpuses, was a sort of manifesto by the young Turks of book collecting, some of them not so young actually. It included a number of distinguished essays, all of pioneer character, and, indeed, C.B. Oldman's on music first editions, Graham Pollard's on serial fiction, Tom Balston's on book illustrators, 1880-1900, to Sadler's on yellowbacks, have not been superseded. Among the contributions was one by the editor on collecting detective fiction, which dotted the I's, crossed the T's, and filled some, at least, of the gaps in the Scribner catalogue. In 1941, I found a random generalization from this piece, elevated by Howard Haycroft, author of the classic Murder for Pleasure, and soon established as the almost official rapporteur of the detective addiction to the dignity of a dictum. I realized uncomfortably that on the basis of an exercise in machete work through what had been in 1934 practically virgin jungle, and perhaps of the Scribner catalogue, I was in danger of being regarded as an authority on the history of detective fiction. In the bibliographical or critical area, an authority, as we all know, is someone who has carved out some original and preferably rather inaccessible niche at an age when he was both spry and in need of self-advertisement, who, in due course, simply by the effluxion of time, gets to be quoted by later writers on his subject for some statement or judgment that suits their purpose, who is, in both senses of the phrase, on the shelf, and who is thus always liable, usually long after he himself has forgotten or lost interest to a devastating correction or refutation, which may or may not, according to his temperament, cause him pain, but which gives a deal of quiet satisfaction to other equally vulnerable authorities of his own generation. During the past 20 years or so, many of the most active and successful collectors of detective fiction have been Americans. Ned Gaiman of California and Frederick Danay of New York, alias half of Ellery Queen, prominent among them. From the ranks of the Baker Street Irregulars, cultists based on New York, though with temples elsewhere, have come many of the bibliographical and bibliophilic refinements at least in the Conan Doyle area. For example, David Randall's remarkable Sherlock Holmes catalogue of 1943, 156 entries for Scribner's, and Edgar W. Smith's Baker Street Inventory, an elementary bibliography, 1944. Both mimeographed quartos and hard to come by nowadays. And although I expect there have been plenty of keen detective fiction collectors, maybe bibliographers too, in England during the decades, I've been otherwise occupied, 
I know nothing of them. It was therefore with a sense of remote but pleasurable nostalgia that I learned a while ago that Graham Greene, long a distinguished amateur of detective studies, had set out with Dorothy Glover on a serious bibliophilic attack on the Victorian detective story. With a ruthlessly firm terminal date of 1900, turning their backs, that is, on Dr. Thorndyke, Philip Trent, Hanau, and the other Edwardian masters, and even excluding the return, the Hound of the Baskervilles, his last bar, Glover Green concentrated on the period which the old pioneers had most enjoyed opening up, but which has, I think, received least attention. Anyway, at the beta plus downwards level, from the increasing host of addicts of the 1940s and 1950s, and which therefore most needs, it would perhaps be an exaggeration to say most deserves, more detailed study, both bibliographically and critically. By the summer of 1962, the Glover Green collection numbered about 350 titles. Not, of course, exhaustive, not every one in first edition, by no means every one in pristine original state, but nevertheless a notable assemblage, with a particularly good showing of the rare Roman policier type yellowback incunabula of the 1850s and 60s, the days of woodcut frontispiece captioned, I am Hawkshaw the detective, or the game is up, my good Mr. Gates, I arrest you for felony, and of epigraphs like Denman's, police or police officers are the lifeguards of the sleeping realm without whom chambers would not be safe, nor the strong law of more potency than a bulrush. Meditating a catalogue, the addicts enlisted Frank Ox, for many years an idiosyncratic and warmly cherished ornament of the book department at Sotheby's, that truly remarkable backroom of bibliography, a catalogue demanded indexes, invited notes. The result encouraged the idea of printing, and in two shakes, of course, there was talk of an introduction and thought for a suitable authority. Ha-ha, said the old warhorse, smelling not the battle, but the opportunity of dusting off the armour in the attic, of posing as an expert, of being able to adopt the stance of a grandfather patting three diligent children on the head, and incidentally of recalling some faded but agreeable memories of the days when he too was a collector of detective fiction. Tune in next week for another Book Collector podcast. And in the meantime, visit thebookcollector.co.uk to read online articles, view booksellers' catalogues, and subscribe to our journal. It's less than the price of a Netflix subscription and far more valuable. Receive four beautiful quarterly issues, plus get access to our entire digital archive. 70 years of erudite articles, illustrations, reviews, news, obituaries, auction reports and more. Everything you could want to know about book collecting. Whether you're researching, learning or just browsing for fun, it's the place to go. Visit thebookcollector.co.uk today.